Chapter 4 of True Tales of Arctic Heroism in the New World. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. True Tales of Arctic Heroism in the New World by Adolphus W. Greeley. Chapter 4 The Discovery of the Northwest Passage. He came not. Conjecture's cheek grew pale. Year after year, in no propitious gale, his banner held its homeward way, and science saddened at her martyr's stay. Anonymous. Few persons realize the accompaniments of the prolonged search by England for the Northwest Passage, whether in its wealth of venturesome daring in its development of the greatest maritime nation of the world, or in its material contributions to the wealth of the nations. Through three and a half centuries, the British government never lost sight of it, from the voyage of Sebastian Cabot in 1498 to the completion of the discovery by Franklin in 1846-47. It became a part of the maritime life of England when Sir Martin Frobisher, brought to bear on the search all the most eminent interests of England, political and aristocratic, scientific and commercial. To the search are due the fur trade of Hudson Bay, the discovery of continental America, the cod fishery of Newfoundland, and the whale fishery of Baffin Bay. For the discovery of the Northwest Passage, various parliaments offered a reward of £20,000 sterling, an enterprise that so vitally affected the maritime policy of England, and in which the historic explorer Henry Hudson and the great navigator James Cook met their death, involved many heroic adventures, among which none has engaged more attention than the fateful voyage of Sir John Franklin and his men, by which the problem was solved. Among the many notable and interesting paintings in the Tate Gallery, one of the famous collections of pictures in London, is one by Sir John Millais, entitled The Northwest Passage. A young girl is reading tales of Arctic travel and of bold adventure to her listening father, whose tightly closed right hand she affectionately fondles as the thrilling story reaches its climax. On the table is an outspread map of North America consulted often by the attentive readers, wherein blank spaces denote regions as yet unknown to man. The tale done, the old, grizzled, weather-beaten sailor, whose clinched hands and fixed eyes betray his strong emotion, cries out, It can be done, and England should do it. Few pictures, in title and in subject, have more forcibly portrayed the pride of achievement, which is the glory of Britain. The tale of the Northwest Passage in its last phase of discovery cannot anywhere be found in a distinct and connected form. As a record of man's heroic endeavor, and of successful accomplishment at the cost of life itself, it should be retold from time to time. For it vividly illustrates an eagerness of, for adventurous daring, for honor's sake, that seems to be growing rarer and rarer, under the influences of a luxurious and materialistic century. When in 1845 the British government decided to send out an expedition for the Northwest Passage, 
all thoughts turned to Franklin. Notable among the naval giants of his day, through deeds done at sea and on land, in battle and on civic duty, he was an honored type of the brave and able captains of the Royal Navy. Following the glorious day of Trafalgar came six years of Arctic service, whose arduous demands appeared in the sketch, crossing the barren grounds, followed by seven years of duty as governor of Tasmania. But these exacting duties had not tamed the adventurous spirit of this heroic Englishman. Deeming it a high honor, he would not ask for the command of this squadron, for the expedition was a notable public enterprise, wherein England should send its ablest commander. When tendered the command, the public awaited eagerly for his reply. He was in his sixtieth year, and through forty-one degrees of longitude, from one hundred and seven degrees west to one hundred and forty-eight degrees west, he had traced the coast of North America, thus outlining far the greater extent of the passage. But his Arctic work had been done under such conditions of hardship, and at such eminent peril of life, as would have deterred most men from ever again accepting such hazardous duty, save under imperative orders. Franklin's manly character stood forth in his answer, quote, No service is dearer to my heart than the completion of the survey of the northern coast of North America and the accomplishment of the Northwest Passage. End quote. Going with him on this dangerous duty were other heroic souls, officers and men, old in polar service, defiantly familiar with its perils and scornful of its hardships. Among these were Crozier and Gore, who the first in five and the last in two voyages had sailed into both the ice-packs of northern seas and among the wondrous ice-islands of the Antarctic world. Sailing May 26, 1845, with 129 souls in the Erebus and the Terror, Franklin's ships were last seen by Captain Dennant of the whaler Prince of Wales on July 26, 1845. Then moored to an iceberg, they awaited an opening in the middle pack through which to cross Baffin Bay and enter Lancaster Sound. Franklin's orders directed that from Cape Walker, Barrow Strait, he should, quote, endeavor to penetrate to the southward and to westward in a course as direct to Bering Strait as the position and extent of the ice, or the existence of the land at present unknown, may admit. End quote. His progress to the west, being barred by heavy ice, he sailed up the open channel to the west of Cornwallis Land, reaching 77 degrees north, the nearest approach to the North Pole in the Western Hemisphere that had been reached in three centuries and exceeded alone by Baffin in 1616, who sailed 45 miles nearer. Returning to the southward, the squadron went into winter quarters at Beachy Island, at 74 degrees and 42 minutes north and 91 degrees 32 minutes west. Knowing the virtue of labor, the captain set up an observatory on shore, built a workshop for sledge-making and for repairs, and surely must have tested the strength and spirit of his crews by journeys of exploration to the north and to the east. It is more than probable that the energy and experiences of this master of Arctic exploration sent the flag of England 
far to the north of Wellington Channel. Affairs looked dark the next spring, for three of the men had died, while the main flow of the straits was holding fast later than usual. As summer came on, care was given to the making of a little garden, while the seaman's sense of order was seen in the decorative garden border, made of scores of empty meat cans, in lieu of more fitting material. They had built a canvas-covered stone hut, made windproof by having its cracks caulked, sailor fashion, by bunches of long reddish mosses. This was the sleeping or rest-room of the magnetic and other scientific observers, who cooked their simple meals in a stone fireplace, built to the leeward of the main hut. Here, with hunter's skill, were roasted and served as a sweet-meated arctic grouse, savoured with wild sorrel and scurvy grass from the nearby ravines. Footnote. These details as to the life of the squadron are drawn from various accounts of the hut, fireplace, pools, vegetation, bird remains, and other domestic refuse discovered by the officers and men under Omancy and Penny in August 1850. Three graves with headboards were found, but no trace or scrap of record or journal of any kind. There were the first traces discovered of Franklin's movements. End footnote. Looking with eager eyes for all things new, as must those who sailed with Franklin, they saw strange sights, unknown forms of nature to non-Arctic sailors. In the days of melting snow, during the quick-coming, swift-flying polar spring, among all things white and colorless, they must have been struck by the high colors of the many little fresh-water pools, whose vivid greens and brilliant reds catch and please an eye, wearied and dulled by the somber Arctic landscape. Around the edge of these tiny ponds form thick coatings of bright green, thread-like algae, fresh-water plants somewhat like kelp or seaweed. The stones at the bottom of the center of the pools were encrusted by the red snow plant, whose rich colors gave a sense of life to the nearby shallows. In such haste Franklin put to sea that the customary rule was not observed of building a cairn in a prominent place, and of placing therein a record of operations to date. Doubtless the sea opened suddenly by one of those offshore winds which bring ice-free water as by magic. But they must have left the land for the open sea, with the free joy of the sailor, not knowing that fate had been kinder to the three comrades who rested under the arctic sky, in the quiet island graves, than to those who with brave hearts and high hopes sailed ever onward and onward. Soon Franklin sighted Cape Walker, whence he should sail to the west and south as conditions of the land and the ice might permit. From the record recovered from the cairn at Point Victory, he seems to have been forced to go south through Peel Sound into Franklin Strait, where we know that both the flagship Erebus and the Terror were beset in the flow ice of the open sea, and were frozen up in the winter pack twelve miles north-northeast of King William Land. This besetment on September 12, 1846, must have been a grievous blow to Franklin, who was now practically assured of the existence of the northwest passage along the continental coast of North America. 
he was directly to the north of, and only eighty-four miles distant from Cape Herschel, King William Land, which in 1839 had been discovered and visited by that successful explorer Thomas Simpson, one of the most active of the many energetic agents of the Hudson Bay Company. The polar winter, tedious and dreary at any time, must have been of fearful and almost undurable length to those eager, ambitious men who, helpless and idle in their ice-held ships, knew that they had substantially finished the search which for two hundred and forty-nine years had engaged the heart and hand of the best of the marine talent of England. The winter passed, oh, how slowly, but it ended, and with the welcome sun and warmer air of coming spring, there was a cheerful sense of thankfulness that death had passed by and left their circle unbroken, and that, quote, all were well, end quote. Footnote. The primary importance of concerted and cooperative action in explorations covering such a broad field was strikingly illustrated by the situation at this time. While Franklin and his men were facing disaster and death in their ice-bound ships to the west of Boothia Felix Land, that distinguished Arctic traveller, John Ray, was exploring Boothia Peninsula. On April 18, 1847, he was less than 150 miles from his sorely distressed countrymen. End of footnote. A man of Franklin's type did not let the squadron remain idle, and it is certain that the shores of Victoria and Boothia Peninsula were explored, and that the magnetic pole visited and definitely relocated. The only sledge party of which there exists a record is that which left the ships on May 24, 1847, consisting of Lieutenant Graham Corps, Mate Deswalk, and six men. Its small crew, led by a junior officer, indicates that its objects were subordinate to those pursued by other parties. Most probably it was a hunting party, in pursuit of the game of King William Land, which now was a matter of grave urgency to Franklin. The excessive number of empty meat cans at Beachy Island is believed to be due to the inferior character of the meat, which led to much being condemned. The large number of deaths which quite immediately followed Gore's journey may well have been associated with the coming of scurvy from malnutrition. At all events, Gore reached Point Victory, King William Land, on May 28th, and there built a cairn and deposited the one of the two only records of Franklin's squadron of any kind that have been found. Footnote. The full text of this record will be found in the sketch entitled The Devotion of Lady Jane Franklin. End quote. It set forth Franklin's discoveries around Cornwallis Land, the wintering at Beachy Island, and the besetment and wintering in the pack of the Erebus and Terror in 70 degrees and 5 minutes north and 98 degrees 23 minutes west. It ended with the encouraging statement that all were well and Sir John Franklin in command. From the Crozier record, to be mentioned later, it is known that evil days followed immediately the favorable conditions set forth by Gore. Sir John Franklin was spared the agony of watching his men and officers perish one by one of exhaustion and starvation, for the record tells us that he died on the ice-beset Erebus on June 11, 1847, 
fourteen days after the erection of the Point Victory Cairn. Death was now busy with the squadron, and within the next eleven months, seven officers, including Gore, and twelve seamen perished, probably from scurvy. Franklin's last days must have been made happy by the certainty that his labors had not been in vain, since it was clearly evident that he had practically finished the two labors dearest to his heart, quote, the completion of the survey of the northern coasts of North America and the accomplishment of the Northwest Passage, end quote. The drift of the ships to the southwest with the main pack carried them to within 65 miles of Cape Herschel, and the chart taken by Franklin showed a distance of only 55 miles of unknown lands to connect the discoveries of Ross with those of Dease and Simpson. Doubtless the evidence of the drift had been supplemented by an exact survey of the coast by sledge. It is incredible to assume that the energetic Franklin allowed his men to remain inert for eight months within a score of miles of unknown lands. The ice holding the ships fast until the spring of 1848, it was necessary for Captain F. R. M. Crozier, now in command, to abandon them, as they were provisioned only until July. It was evident that the only chance of life was to reach the Hudson Bay posts, via back Great Fish River, 250 miles distant. While it would not be possible to haul enough food for the whole party, they had good reasons to believe that they could live in part on the country. Simpson had reported large game as plentiful along the south coast of the island, while Back spoke of thousands of fish at the river's mouth. Arrangements for the retreat were made by landing on April 22, 1848, on King William Land, abundant supplies of bedding, tentage, provisions, clothing, ammunition, etc., and a large camp was there established. Sledges were strengthened and boats fitted thereon, with which to ascend Back River, and if necessary, to cross Simpson Strait. Great haste was made, for they were ready to start south on April 25, 1848, on which date the record of Gore was supplemented by another signed by Crozier and his second-in-command, Captain James Fritz James. It recorded that Gore had returned to the Erebus from his sledge journey in June 1847, and was now dead, as well as twenty others. It added, quote, Sir John Franklin died on the 11th of June, 1847. The officers and crew, consisting of 105 souls, start on tomorrow, 26, for Back's Fish River. End of quote. Footnote. For full text, see sketch The Heroic Devotion of Lady Jane Franklin. End of footnote. Struggling south along the west coast of King William Land, their progress was slow owing to illness, impaired strength, and their very heavy and suitable field equipment. Doubtless someone fell out of the sledge traces daily, and doubtless with the spirit of heroic Britons, they acclaimed with cheers their final success when they had dragged her heavy boat to the north side of Simpson Strait, and thus actually filled in the last gap in the Northwest Passage. Their provisions ran low, and Lieutenant John Irving went back to the ship for other supplies, but his heroic zeal was superior to his strength. He was buried on the beach in full uniform, 
encased in a canvas shroud. Footnote. Many of these details are from Gilder's Schwatka's Search, a remarkable expedition by these young Americans. End of footnote. Of his party, one at least reached the ship and died on board of the Erebus or Terror, which, according to the reports of the Eskimos, sank later off the west coast of Adelaide Peninsula. Two others of this detachment evidently endeavored to rejoin the main party, but died in an abandoned boat. With hope and patience they waited for the coming of game that would save their lives, and alongside their skeletons thirty years later were found, standing, their muskets loaded and cocked for instant use. Graves and skeletons, boats and tents, clothing and camp gear, silently tell the tragic tale of that awful march, which has been traced from Point Victory to Montreal Island, through the heroic researches of Hobson and McClintock, of Hall, Schwatka, and Gilder. No weaklings were they, but as true men they strove with courage and energy to the very end. At least one brave man died on the march, and his skeleton lying on its face verified the truth of the terse tribute of the Eskimo woman who said to McClintock, they fell down and died as they walked. One boat's crew perished on the west coast of Adelaide Peninsula, and another entered the mouth of Back River, to die one knows not how or where. The skeleton found farthest to the south is perchance that of the last survivor, possibly Surgeon Stanley of the Erebus, as Mr. Stanley was found carved on a stick found on Montreal Island in 1855. Of the last survivor, MacGahan, in Northern Lights, thus surmises, quote, One sees this man all alone in that terrible world, gazing around him, the sole living thing in that dark frozen universe. There is no hope for him, none. His clothing is covered with frozen snow. His face is lean and haggard. He takes out his notebook and crawls a few lines, as he has done every day. A drowsy torpor is crawling over his senses. It will be sweet to sleep, untroubled by dreams of void and hunger. Through a rift in the clouds glares a red flush of light, like an angry bloodshot eye. He turns and meets the sinister sunbeams with a steady eye, in which a fiery gleam is reflected, as though bidding defiance. As they glare at each other, this man and the spectre, the curtain is drawn, and all is dark. End quote. This we know, that with loyalty and solidarity these heroic men kept fast in their path of daily duty, facing unflinchingly cold and disease, exhaustion and starvation, and, as has been truly said, they thus, quote, forged the last link of the Northwest Passage with their lives, end quote. Rightly are the loftiest strains of the poet's song, invoked by steadfast fortitude and by the spirit of high endeavor, rather than by physical acts of intrinsic value. So for more than a generation, as a reminder of heroic worth, the students of Oxford University have year by year turned into classic Latin verse the memorial lines of the poet laureate. Avoiding mention of the Northwest Passage, Tennyson raised to Franklin's quote, memory a monument more lasting than brass, end quote, when he penned these enduring lines. Not here, not here. 
the white north has thy bones, but thou, heroic sailor soul, art sailing on a happier voyage, now toward no earthly pole. End of chapter 4